I've been reading poems from a person named Britt Posmer. She is a painter and a poet and a friend of mine. And this one's called We Belong. We belong to more than earth. We belong to more than earth. The causeless ground of rest swells through all activity. The causeless ground of rest swells through all activity. Abandon self-importance. You can imagine this is a deep practitioner and poems like this aren't things pointing their fingers at us. They're like reminders to self. We belong to more than earth. The causeless ground of rest dwells through all activity. Abandon self-importance. Enter the paradox of prostration as flight. It's a very powerful line, isn't it? Enter the paradox of prostration as flight. Only then will we embrace the love we have been given for a time. The breast that feeds us, the home we gift, the home we make. Abandon self-importance, enter the paradox of prostration as flight. So day three, and in the sometimes fatiguing thick of session, you might think Zen is not for you. You might dream of a retreat with a little more beachy vibes, more kale and gentle yoga. We've actually had no kale and no gentle yoga, at least some of that. Maybe some CBD drinks and hammocks, that kind of retreat. <laughs> once in a while, somebody does. I said last night, nobody just stumbles into a session, but actually once in a while they do. <laughs> They're going to slip through the cracks and they end up sitting here and we didn't quite tell them what we were up to, but there's definitely some karma there anyway. So the relative starkness of this form of our practice is just one form of our practice, but the relative starkness of this form of our practice is also its compassion. As I've been coming back to as a theme, our unresolved existential anxiety spoils everything. It would be fine to have your beachy retreat with your CBD drinks and your hammock, but your mind goes with you to Bali or wherever. Our unresolved existential anxiety at least diminishes the play and joy in everything almost without exception. And especially if you really make contact with it and you know it's there, then you can't, you can't unknow it. You can't unsee the first noble truth that the Buddha invited us into. You may wish you could. You could try, you can't unsee it. So this is the compassion of this tradition. Our unresolved existential anxiety basically spoils everything. 
And so let's cut away frills and get down to the core of the matter. Let's do what we can about that existential anxiety. And Zen practice, among many other things, but Zen practice is something you can do about it. Peace is good, but peace is not the goal of our practice. I want to linger on this a little bit. There's a desire for peace. If peace is something you conceive or seize on as a feeling state, then as soon as you leave here, you have a problem. And so peace became the cause of disturbance. If you leave retreat and say, that was peaceful, now this is disturbance, and I love peace, I'm all about peace, peace is the way, then all you can do is want to get back to session or back to something like this, and then you're in turmoil. So the idea of peace created turmoil. What was the point of that? Peace is not the same thing as a good CBD drink and lying in a hammock. You might think that your goal is to sit here and arrive at such a place, looking for that feeling as your uh, sense of I'm there or I'm not there. Now, if you're cultivating samadhi, more and more subtle concentration, there will be states of peace. That peace will soak into your body over the years of practice. It will readjust your nervous system, I think. True. But every Zen teacher I've ever known still gets agitated, still gets irritated. Just a matter of circumstances. Peace, as far as the tradition is concerned, is not a feeling state. Peace is your relationship to phenomena. Peace is having no argument with what arises. Peace is sitting here having a panic attack with no argument. Peace is your back throbbing with pain with no argument. Peace is a broken heart with no argument. When there's no argument, that vast background that we could call peace, it becomes an ally rather than something that's shut out. So peace is not a feeling, it's a relationship to appearances, to experience. Peace is not our goal. And further, peaceful conditions are not a requirement for you to do the practice. Now, it sometimes can seem like that's what's being said. You need to cultivate concentration, have a more stable, quieter mind, and then you can do this or that level of practice. But that doesn't mean that you feel so peaceful and then you get on with the real work. And if you don't feel peaceful and relaxed, you can't do it. That's simply not true. Some of the, what I would say is the most penetrating practice I've done, I was going through panic attacks. Or I was going through some kind of deep bodily stress. 
had the good fortune, at least at that moment, of not believing that I had to be peaceful and feeling good in order to do the practice. That's becoming a hothouse flower. Yeah, you know what a hothouse flower is? It's a flower, it's very beautiful, but once it's outside the conditions of the greenhouse, it just immediately wilts. Being present is not the goal of our practice. Being present is good, but everyone and everything is already that. Where else would you be? Think about that for a moment. Where else would you be? Even when you're thinking about what happened to you 30 years ago, you're right here. That thought is arising now. It's actually a fresh expression. You can't not be present. Of course, it's really nice to finally stop rehearsing these tired, tired old little memory clips that have so faded and so been edited, they probably, if we had the technology to go back in time, would not come even close to the experience we believe we had. Science verifies this, right? Memory is just recreated every time we access it, every time. Very sad, very sad to live in memory. Being present is good, but that's not the goal. We make being present the goal, we seize on that, and then not present becomes the enemy. And we have this dualistic stress of opposites. If we say this is practice, then whatever is not this is not practice. How can we be free? So being present is the goal, and we look around and say, who's not being present? I'm being present. <laughs> look at the way they pick up their bowl. <laughs> Only Zen people do this, by the way. <laughs> I've been around enough Dharma to see it's a Zen thing. If you were mindful, you wouldn't. <clears throat> being present is good, but being present Orienting to that as the goal of practice creates its opposite, and that's dualistic stress, and it's not freedom. There's no such thing as the present moment. That's so obvious. Just look right now. Try to arrive at the present moment. What does that mean? You can't touch it. Diamond Sutra says, present mind does not abide, past mind does not abide, future mind does not abide. Bring forth the mind. Having quieted or detached from thoughts is good. Now people come from different um, practice backgrounds into... Well, this must happen in every retreat. Every retreat that happens in the modern time, people come from different practice backgrounds with different orientations towards how do we work with the mind. And some traditions say, don't worry, just let your mind do whatever it does and just be basically not attached to it. You don't need to quiet your mind. Some traditions say, well, look, there's some things about the Dharma you can't really experience until your mind is as empty and still. 
that's not the goal, but it's very beneficent to know that state. We're a little more towards that side. So we could say having quieted or detached from thoughts is good. At the very least, you know that they're optional in almost all situations. At least you know that most of them, by the contrast of having quieted in your mind, most of them are banal. Some people have discovered the narrator. Nothing is more boring than the narrator. It's always been there, but when you notice it, it's like you're suddenly thrust into this terrible new hell where everything you do, there's a report about it. Why is that there? Why have we been doing that? Maybe it's some kind of uh, relic from when we first developed language as children and it was like, now I'm playing, now mommy, and, and it just no one ever told us to stop. <laughs> But that's a layer of identity, actually. I, 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 the refrain of I. You've got to know what happens when you really interrupt the refrain of I. So having quieted or detached from thoughts is good, but they've always been empty and untethered. So seizing on that as the goal of practice misses a deeper freedom. Thought has never been an obstruction, only depends on how you relate to it. There's never been a thinker. It just weaves that illusion as it arises. The thought I doesn't proclaim any truth. It just proclaims I. And yet, there's a sense of presence. And yet there is experience. So no thought or quiet mind co-arises thought mind and noisy mind, creating the dualistic stress of opposites. You want to get away from one thing and arrive at another thing. You arrive at that thing, you want to protect it so you don't get back to that thing that is not good to be at. That's duality. Thoughts have always been untethered. The mystery is, thankfully, I don't have your thoughts and you don't have mine. But they've never been tethered. Being able to sit still, have good posture, do the Zen forms without friction, it may be good. It may not be very good at all. Keeping the forms and sitting still and all of that can become like this strange point of pride or thing that we seize onto because we're losing the essence of practice. We're losing the juice. So the form, to look, to play the part, to look the role becomes somehow elevated. Freedom has nothing to do with how you fold your hands. How could it? It has nothing to do with a slumped posture or an upright posture. Although the upright posture helps. Although sitting still helps. So being a model Zen student is not our goal. 
Rebelling against that is not our goal. You find it beautiful? Beautiful. It's all skillful means. I remember I was confused about this when I was much younger and I would be sitting and I would be going into samadhi and because of that I lost track of my body and I would start to lean. And then I would think, oh, I don't look like those Japanese guys in the magazine. I better straighten up and look the part. That was wrong. So all of these aspects can be called groundwork or foundational work. Let's acknowledge that. There is helpful groundwork. But let's also acknowledge that all of these are things that create an opposite, that create stress because you can't hold on to them. When grasping comes into the uh, energies of practice, the skills of practice, when grasping comes into that, it's just back within the miserable realm of loss and gain. One more thing that you can't control or keep, no matter how much you wish it, go off to a cave somewhere. The brain goes with you. The state slips away. Whatever it is, the state slips away. It's not going to be found in a state. That which deeply feeds and frees the heart. It's not going to be found in a state. But the state may be the window into it. Returning to this point of basic rejection of the moment. The world of gain and loss, the world we live in, Dharma teachers have to state the obvious, that's their job. This world of gain and loss that we live in is miserable to the degree that we retain an argument with the basic nature of the universe. Actually, impermanence is something extraordinarily beautiful. Impermanence is radiance. Impermanence is flow. Impermanence is spring arrives. Impermanence is you can't actually get stuck. Impermanence is it's not possible to fall out of the possibility of love and freedom in this universe. You can't because there's no, nothing sticks, nothing stops. But when we're in an argument with impermanence, to the degree that we seize on that argument, depending on how much our heels are dug in, this world of gain and loss is miserable. It sucks. Everything you work for falls apart and you lose it. Things you're super enthusiastic about lose their color. 
You seize on what you lost. Meanwhile, much opportunities arise for refreshment. But we don't see that if we're in argument over what we're losing, what we've lost. Britt Posmer's poem, again, called This. After all of the fight has gone out, there is this, the invitation to extraordinary tenderness. After all of the fight has gone out, there is this, the invitation to extraordinary tenderness. The ability to receive what arises. Dogen Zenji said, to carry the self forward and experience the 10,000 dharmas is delusion. The self meaning the, the whole body of preferences and demands and insistences. Then Dogen says, to let the 10,000 dharmas advance and realize the self is awakening. Condition of open-handedness. Extraordinary tenderness. So easy to say these things. So easy to say them. We could articulate the goal of practice if we insist on having a goal as knowing our original nature. We could say, if we wish to know our original nature, then fulfilling that wish could be called a goal. And there is a goal. But goal is topsy-turvy when you are your own destination. Rumi says in a poem called, Some Kiss We Want. There is some kiss we want with our whole lives, the touch of spirit on the body. Seawater begs the pearl to break its shell. This impulse to wake up and to wake out of the confinement of self, it's not necessarily inside. It's not necessarily outside. we may be impinged on by forces wishing us to enlarge, to break free. Seawater begs the pearl to break its shell. And the lily, how passionately it needs some wild darling. At night, I open the window and ask the moon to come and press its face against mine. Breathe into me. Breathe into me. Close the language door and open the love window. The moon won't use the door. Dogen Zenji articulated our practice as taking the backward step. To stop going out and looking. To stop departing. And thus missing the basic ground. How how much backward when we are in the intimate moment of sitting which is in one sense you think oh this is just meditation 
I'm just doing meditation. We can, we can really separate it from our lives. This is this thing called zazen, a special thing I do. But really, zazen is this intimate mirror of our essential relationship to life. It's a revelation of our existential stance. It's just raw and naked. You're just there with yourself, that's all. That's the only difference. How hard it is to actually just be oneself without even a slight departure. To be tugged forward into the next moment. Anticipation's lure. To pull away from what you're experiencing because something in you says, no, I can't, I don't like this, this isn't right. Some small refusal. That's what stillness is about. This is what stillness is. Stillness is on one level giving up that small refusal Dogen says, a hair's breadth deviation, and heaven and earth are split apart. Small refusal. We're looking out. We have these senses. We gaze out into the world. We perpetually gaze out into the world. And it's as if the heart flows away from itself, always towards something else. And it really just gets more or less refined. When I was 15, it flew out towards, well, of course, women. Not of course, but flew out towards sex, flew out towards cars. Later, it flew out towards samadhi, spiritual texts just gets more refined. We have these senses. We experience them as gates on the world. The heart flows outward. The heart flowing outward is not the heart at rest in itself, taking the backward step. We do want to realize our original nature. We could think every desire, in a, in a way, what we really want is to extinguish the desire. A new form of it takes place, a new object becomes shiny, right? From gross to subtle, go through life, a new object becomes shiny. The shiny object arises, what we really want, let's take this as a question because I'm not sure if it's true for you. What we really want is not that shiny object, whether it be enlightenment or a new car. What we really want is relief from that wanting. We want relief from that departing from the heart at rest in itself. We have to investigate um, desire. So we want our original nature before the first movement. Outside of all movement, 
in a way, as soon as you sit down in Zazen, before you even begin to meditate, that's it. Before you apply your mind, before you are animated by some idea of doing or not doing, right there. Before the first movement. In the teachings, it is said in various traditions that it's an extraordinary person who has enough faith and spiritual acuity to be able to simply, directly recognize just like that. I'm certainly not one of those people. And so we have practice. Now, I want to make a point about the Zen tradition. There are many ways in which Zen practice and secular mindfulness and other traditions couldn't be further apart. But those ideas affect how we see what we're doing. MBSR and Zen could not be further apart, frankly. At least how it's taught most of the time. Dogen Zenji, in articulating Zazen, said, Zazen is to drop off body and mind. And what does that mean? Probably a high-caliber teacher would just offer that and leave, not try to say anything more. Let the student wrestle with that. What does that mean to drop off body and mind? You have to have confidence faith that this is a tradition based on profound love and compassion. This is not some kind of meanness. Drop off body and mind. In other words, don't identify with them. So it's not about my feelings and being present with my feelings. It's not about being aware of all my sensations. It's not about keeping up on what's going on in my mind. Those things can be useful. Those things have their place. They are important elements at a time. But Zazen is dropping off body and mind. In other words, you don't have to fix this. This is not about getting this all in order. Right, back to the peaceful state. This is not different than Buddha Shakyamuni. If we go to the Pali Canon, some of the earliest recorded teachings of the Buddha, the Buddha gives the teachings on the stages of concentration, on the foundations of mindfulness. And alongside that, there's this whole stream of teachings that's basically about how to disidentify from what is not truly you. Or to say it, I think, more exactly, to let go of the idea of identity. This is a contemplation, an accessible contemplation, at least to some degree, that the Buddha taught. And I want to invite you to practice it along with me. Now, if you 
find some resonance with this, then you could consider it an auxiliary method to your practice. We've been emphasizing, don't just change method all the time because that, that itself creates a kind of distraction. But this is essential dharma. So I'm going to probably pretty closely paraphrase the Buddha as I do this, this guided meditation. Begin by attuning to the feeling of the body. Don't concentrate on it. Just attune to it. You're already feeling it. So attuned to the experience of the body. and reflect internally like this. I am not this, this is not myself. The body is not me, the body is not mine. Give rise to that reflection, but feel, see the truth of it. I am not this, this is not myself, this is not me, this is not mine. It might invite a shift, however subtle, in in experience. I am not this. This is not myself. This is not me. This is not mine. This isn't philosophy. Feel, see the truth of that here and now. The body is not me. The body is not mine. In some ways, it's very counterculture teaching. It's a radical teaching. Now, if you like, shift to the domain of feeling. In the Buddha's teaching, a level of awareness is to notice that there is always a feeling tone, either positive, negative, or and of neutral, somewhere on the spectrum. It's not necessarily about an emotion, but there's feeling. Attuned to feeling. Maybe it's your mood. Coming to intimate contact with feeling. and give rise to the reflection, I am not this, this is not myself. This is not me, this is not mine.
If you can experience it as an object, it is not your true nature. can simplify it to feelings are not me, feelings are not mine. I am not this, this is not myself, this is not me, this is not mine. Feel the truth of that statement. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not myself. Now, if your mind is stable enough, then you can now shift the domain to mind itself, and specifically thinking mind. So attune or hold the space that can witness Thinking mind, think itself. I like to think of this, it's kind of like if you could put your head in a fishbowl and just effortlessly watch the fishes of thought swim around. Hongzhir says when we're not identified with thought, he says it's like fish lazily swimming by the bottom of the ocean. Or it's a little bit like eavesdropping on someone else's conversation. So aware of thinking mind and give rise to the reflection. This is not me. This is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. Feel the truth of that. You can do this with the senses, or do this with anything that we take as me. It's a little bit like melting the glue on a popstick model that has been assembled. You take one of those heat guns and you melt the glue so that you can take the pieces apart. These contemplations melt the glue. I was once doing a practice like this very diligently, and then later I was in Oriyoki, and awareness just shed me, and I couldn't even move for a few minutes. There was just this thing called Jogan sitting there, holding a bowl. Hongzhir. says it like this. Uh, 
Now I want to give a, a preamble. There are direct methods of There's the approach of storming the gates of heaven, we could call it. And some koan work is like that. We're going to muster great energy, great determination. We're going to put ourselves in the uncomfortable situation of working on a koan with a teacher. And we're not just going to melt that glue. We're going to take a blowtorch to it. Now, it's not always like that, but it's powerful and it demands power. But in some ways, this process is like we do contemplations like I just went through. We sit zazen. We read the teachings on the nature of the self. And it's like a little malware gets into the self system. And in the background, without you knowing, it slowly starts to corrode. And the whole thing begins to fall apart. Teachings like this are a little bit like that. You can't do what he says, but you can let it act on you. Hungzhir says, cast off completely your head and skin. Your head being all of the ideas, all of the fixed beliefs. Cast off completely your head and skin. Thoroughly withdraw from distinctions of light and shadow. Where the 10,000 changes do not reach is the foundation that even a thousand sages cannot transmit. If you're like me, you have the fantasy that there's some spiritual teacher that you're going to finally see the YouTube video and go to their retreat, and they're so illumined, all you have to do is sit there and pow! That was worth the plane ticket. If that happens to such a person, they were ripe. Where the 10,000 changes do not reach is the foundation that even a thousand sages cannot transmit. You can't be given it. Simply by yourself, illuminate and deeply experience it with intimate accord. The original light flashes through confusion. True illumination reflects into the distance. Deliberations about being and non-being are entirely abandoned. The whole matter of is or isn't there a self is in a way elementary. The wonder appears before you, its benefit transferred out for eons. Immediately you follow conditions in accord with awakening without obstruction from any defilements. The mind does not attach to things and your footsteps are not visible on the road. We become more frictionless. We don't live in a continual opposition to experience as if the whole world was, the universe was designed to offend us. The mind does not attach to things and your footsteps are not visible on the road. You, know, you don't make a big fuss about it. There's just simplicity. Even if you thoroughly understand, still please practice until it is familiar. One of the things I experience as in the teacher function is, um, of course, both a sense of inadequacy and a deep yearning to really help, to help this 
process along. And so I want to give some meditation advice. Sometimes I, someone leaves Sanzen and I think, oh, it would have been helpful to mention such and such. And then the next person's in and it's completely gone and you're gone. And So here's some meditation advice in no particular order. First of all, feel out right effort. If we're too intense with body or mind, first of all, we thicken the moment. We're not separate from this moment. If we are thick with hardened effort, the moment gets thick. The nature of things is just to not really even arise at all. That's how fluid the moment is. So there's something to be said for a lightness of experiencing. We can thicken the moment or we flood the engine. The effort that you might have rightly needed to make to really settle early in session is not necessarily the effort you need now. At this point, it's good to start checking out what is the minimal amount of effort it takes to stay with it. The breath and awareness are not two things that meet. They already are interfused. Your body and awareness are not two things that meet. Sound and ear consciousness are not two things that meet. They're already interfused. So effort is just to not be distracted from this intimacy. How much does it take? So too intense, those things happen. Too loose, we drift. We're overpowered by wanderings. And something that nobody can do for us is distilling out the passion for awakening separating that energy essence. It truly is a Bodhi-mind is an energy. It's like a, a silent fire. Separating that from critical assessment, separating that from strainful engagement, separating that out from lusting after states. I don't know if there's any way that happens except for putting in the time. Cohen Ejo says, don't sit like a hell dweller, a hungry ghost, or an animal. So these are the six realms, the six different styles of being confused in Buddhist cosmology. So a hell dweller is obviously stewing in anger or being in such opposition to anything that you make your experience hell. Hungry ghost is an insatiability. The animal is basically about just going unconscious. Just, I just want to get comfortable. Stereotype of animals in the Dharma is that they're just about comfort after taking care of sex and food. 
That's like 95% of humans. 97%. It's not guarantee that we're a human. That's another Dharma teaching. When we arrive at a place of abiding, of vibrant stillness, we meet the remnants of grasping because it says, what's next? What do I do now? Is it going to happen? I can't tell you how many times I've sat here going, oh, it's about to happen. (laughs) When you arrive at abiding, you have to forsake waiting and anticipating. You have to forsake time. Dogen articulated as settling the self on the self. That degree of total coming to rest within oneself. Because waiting is enough of a hair to separate heaven and earth. So just offer that up to the void. It's not that you can keep that from arising, those instincts, because we are beings of desire. We are beings who have some aspiration. That aspiration is there. There is a point to abandon your spiritual aspiration. At that moment, it has served its purpose. Just. It's vital that there is steadfastness of effort Steadfastness doesn't mean trying really hard. I've been trying to say that. Steadfastness of effort, especially in face uh, in the face of intense mind storms. As I said before, it's really hard to do this because basically our way of being is that if we're working hard at something and we're not getting the result that we think we should get, we just quit. We give up. Usually. Who does anything hard without feedback that it's worth doing? Very few people. But spiritual practice is different. This is where faith comes in. Even if you have a crazy shitstorm of mind, you have to keep making the same quality of effort. Because... Who knows what could be there if you are upright and present in the wake of that storm. Related is consent to feeling. Consent to feeling. Don't dodge or shirk from yourself even 0.01%. Discover what happens when, let's say, you have, um, you wake up with some terrible mood. Discover what happens when you don't go into panic or strategy. Uh oh, I feel terrible. 
Let me get a cookie. Uh-oh, I feel terrible. Let me fill in the blank, whatever your strategy is. Discover what happens when you just consent to that 100%. Agree to feel it as if it's going to last forever. See what happens. What is this feeling? What is this mood when you agree to feel it 100%? 98% is still a problem. The last meditation point. You could make a practice of diligently abandoning conclusions about your meditation. We might think that we need to actually have an idea of how it's going. You don't need to have an idea of how your practice is going at all. It's always biased. Abandon conclusions. Now, maybe after a sit, you can assess, was I engaged sincerely or not? In a way, you can't ever really totally know. Who can say what sincerity is? It's your life. But even if you do just that, then you just can offer the session up to the void. No need to think about it. It doesn't mean anything. There is less continuity in reality than we like to believe. Jane Hirschfield says, being wholehearted means not knowing you are. You're just offering each session to the Buddha, just offering it up to the divine, offering it up to great emptiness, offering it up to the lineage. end with a little story. This is called The Sun and the Cave. One day the sun and the cave struck up a conversation. The sun had trouble understanding what dark and dank meant, and the cave didn't quite get the hang of light and clear, so they decided to change places. The cave went up to the sun and said, Ah, I see. This is beyond wonderful. Now come down and see where I have been living. The sun went down to the cave and said, Gee, I don't see any difference. 